Our passage for, for this morning comes from Luke chapter 24. There will be two passages that I'll be reading for us. So let us now read the reading of God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, he drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, then Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not believe. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn with us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who are with them gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. Verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And joy they were continually in the temple, blessing God. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And I'd also like to wish you a very happy Easter. And I'm very glad that you chose to spend this morning with us. Today's passage ends with one of the most hard-to-find things on this earth. It's something that almost no one has. The passage ends with joy. It ends with great joy. Joy that does not disappear when life gets hard, but that flourishes even when times are tough. Joy that lasts. And if you think about it and you look around, you'll discover that almost no one in this world has that kind of joy. Think about it. Can you name one high-profile person that you would characterize as joyful? One leader, one politician, one community organizer. How about a celebrity? Singer, songwriter, actor, actress, sports figure. One well-known person who gushes joy. Can you think of one? Someone who you can see it in their face, you hear it in their voice. It just pours out of every fiber of their being. A joyful person is so incredibly rare. It's hard to find one in the larger world. But let's be fair this morning. We'll take the log out of our own eye first. It's hard to find one in many of our churches. Hard to find one in our families. If you were, to ask, if you were asked to describe your friends in five words or less, how many of them would you use the word joyful to describe? Well, let's make it even more difficult. How about if all of your friends were asked to describe you in five words or less, how many times do you think the word joyful would come up? It's a very convicting question for me because as I think about my friends, think about my family, I don't know that it would make the top five in people's minds. Joy is so hard to come by, and that's what makes the end of this chapter so striking. The disciples find it. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. They have found the key to living a life of joy. But think about what's going on in their lives right now because in so many ways, nothing has changed since Friday afternoon when they saw Jesus die on a cross. Think about it. Pilate is still the Roman governor. He's still a badly flawed governor. He sentenced Jesus to death when he knew that there was no reason to. He is still ruling the country. He's still too weak to do the right thing. Pilate's still in charge. The nation of Israel is still oppressed by Rome. They are occupied by Roman soldiers. They're flooded by Roman tax collectors. Religious sphere is not any better. The high priests and teachers of the law are still hypocrites. They're power brokers who are willing to murder someone when they see that person as a threat. The Jewish crowds are still fickle. They praise Jesus one day and then they call for his death less than a week later. The people with blatant moral failures that Jesus reached out to, they're still there living in the people, living in the land among God's people. So also are people who are suffering. Easy to find people who are blind, lame, paralyzed, and leprous. Nothing in these, these guys' worlds has changed, and yet the disciples have joy. They've gone from sad to joyful, from doubting to believing, from wanting their version of redemption to blessing and praising God for his. And it's not because they have Jesus back again. He just left them, carried up into heaven. But instead of being sad again, they're filled with joy. 
It's a joy that does not depend on their circumstances, that does not depend on what's going on around them. Instead, this is a joy that comes from inside. Their world has not changed. And yet something now is so different that the only reasonable response is to be joyful. I want that. I suspect most all of you do too. So how do we get that? Here's what you and I need to have it. Three things this morning. We need first to see that there is every reason to believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. That there is evidence to believe that what we just read in Luke chapter 24 is true. That it really did happen. You need to see first that Jesus rose from the dead, but you need more than that. You need second, to encounter Jesus personally. To have a real connection with him. And then third, you need to embrace God's agenda over your own. You need to see that Jesus rose, you need to encounter him personally, and you need to embrace his agenda. Those three things are the pathway to joy. First, you need to see that there's reason to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This is really important for you and me. We live in a naturalistic age that discounts miracles, does not believe in supernatural events. And we live in an age that works overtime to deconstruct history. To say that recorded histories are not necessarily what happened, they are merely someone's perspective of what happened. And so as modern people, we approach a text like Luke 24 with a certain amount of skepticism. And if you don't approach it that way, please understand your friends and relatives do, the people that you would like to introduce to Jesus. We approach it with skepticism. But this passage tells us what our faith is built on. So if the resurrection didn't really happen, our faith is built on a lie. It's not grounded in reality. So how do you tell the difference between whether this is a fact-based report from eyewitnesses like Luke tells you it is in chapter one of his book, or if it's stories that people made up because they were missing their friend Jesus. Jesus was murdered, and they got around, they started to talk about him afterward, they started to reminisce, and as they did the, the things that he did, they, they, they got a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger until finally they created a story, a story that they even believed, about him rising from the dead. How do you tell the difference between what Luke chapter 24 is? Well, there's actually a lot of good ways to do that. I'm only going to cover two this morning. Let me urge you then to study the evidence on your own so that you know that you're not following cleverly invented stories and also so that you can help other people see that as well. If you'd like help with this, please reach out to me, reach out to one of the other pastors, reach out to any of the elders. You can contact us Contact the office through renewalmainline.org. Uh, We'd be happy to talk with you, happy to give you other resources. This is really important for your own spiritual journey. It's really important if you want to have joy. Here's the first piece of evidence in this passage. As Cleopas tells us, uh, tells Jesus, excuse me, in verses 22 to 23, it's that women were the first eyewitnesses to Jesus' tomb being empty. They were the witnesses who heard angels declare for the very first time that Jesus is alive. Now, why is that evidence that this account really happened? It's evidence because in ancient times, testimony from a woman was not considered as reliable. I know how that sounds. It, it's incredibly hard to say it. It's offensive to say that. You and I should be offended. 
But if we're going to understand the time in which this was written, you have to realize that every society has things in it that it just takes for granted. Things that are horribly wrong when you look at from the outside, but things that are taken for granted is just the way it is from the inside. Unless we be arrogant, you have to realize that our society has all of that too. To ancient society, it was just obvious that what women said could not count as evidence. They were considered as inferior, unreliable when compared to men, and so they were not permitted to testify in court. Now, if that offends you, good. <laughs> it really should. It offends God. It's not the way that Jesus treated women. It's not the way that he taught his followers, both male and female, to think about women. You start to see some of the impact of a Christian approach to women in Luke's gospel. Luke makes a point of showcasing women in his book and highlighting how Jesus interacted with them, how he cared about them, how he respected them, how he engaged with them, how he received from them. Luke at times will also contrast men and women, and uh, whenever he does that, women always come out on top. And those are some of the signs that Jesus' counterculture is starting to take root among his people. At least it's taking root with Luke and with the people that he interviewed. Rebecca McLaughlin, she won this uh, last year's Christianity Today's Apologetics Book Award for the year. She points out that it was actually Christianity that was in part responsible for rejecting the prevailing worldview that men and women had different worth and value. It was Christianity that not only, quote, raised the status of women in the church, unquote, but that it's Christians who have often, quote, played a leading role in championing women's rights, unquote, from that time down to the present age. I very much appreciate that she acknowledges that despite Christianity's influence, both the world and the church have still treated women horrifically since the time of Christ. But she argues that the cure for that in her words, is more Christianity, not less. The cure is that we would be more true to how Jesus in the scripture teaches us how to value and treat women and how to value and treat men, and that we would call the church to be more of what Christ intends us to be. All that said, when Luke was writing, Israelite society, Greek and Roman societies, they did not value women. So why, if you were writing to that audience, why would you record, as all four Gospels do, that the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb were women? If you were going to make up stories in that social setting, it would never occur to you to have women figure prominently in the narrative. It just it wouldn't enter your mind. You wouldn't have a category for it. And even if it did enter your mind, you would not put that evidence first if you were trying to convince outsiders to embrace this new religion. Sure, you would write about Peter and John visiting the empty tomb, but you would ignore that the women were bold enough to be there first. So then why record it here? There's no reason to do that unless what? Unless it really happened this way. Unless everyone knew that it happened this way. That's one evidence that this account is true. One evidence that points to the tomb being empty and to Christ having risen. Another compelling evidence in this passage, at the end, verse 52, Jesus' disciples worship him. And there is simply no room for that 
within a Jew Jewish worldview. It was ingrained in Jewish society for nearly 1,500 years that the Lord, their God, was one Lord, that there is only one God, and that he alone made everything else that has been made, that there is no hybrid between what is divine and what is created. Now, in the Greek and world, Roman worlds, it was possible for the gods to cohabit with humanity and produce demigods. It was also possible that a human being could be raised to the level of a god. That was possible in the larger world of their day, but it was not possible in the Jewish world. That was anathema. It's actually the charge that the Jewish priests leveled against Jesus, that he deserved to die because he elevated himself to the same level as God, that he made himself equal to God. It would never have entered the Jewish mind to even suggest that a human being could be worshipped or should be worshipped. There was no category for it in their worldview. They would not have done it. They would not have created stories about it. And they certainly would not have circulated those stories expecting anyone to believe them. The Jewish people were the very last people on earth. They were the last people in all of human history to worship a human being. Unless what? Unless they completely believed he was also God at the same time. And they certainly would not have considered that possibility unless he had come back to life fully bodily after he had been killed. Unless they had seen him and experienced him after they had seen him die. Unless they truly believed that he rose from the dead. There's a lot of evidence to believe that this is actually true, that it really did happen. That's point one. If you want to have joy, you need to see that there are good reasons to believe that God has supernaturally broken into this world to raise Jesus from the dead. But that's not enough to have joy. You need point two to have a personal encounter with this God, this God who changes you. Jesus has a really busy day on that first resurrection Sunday. If you read the other gospel accounts, you realize that he talked with Mary outside the tomb, that somewhere along the way he's engaged with Peter. He's later going to visit the rest of the disciples that night. But this afternoon in Luke 24, outside of Jerusalem, what is he doing? He's going on a seven-mile hike. And he's hiking with two people. Now, this is the first time in all of Scripture that you've ever heard Cleopas's name. You won't hear it again in the rest of Scripture or in church history. Cleopas has an unnamed companion. Don't know whether that's male or female. It might be his wife. And so what do you realize here? You realize Jesus is out looking for two people who are not part of the original 12 apostles. They're not part of his inner friend circle. What is he doing this whole day long? He's looking for his people. And he's looking for all of them because they all count, regardless of how important anyone else thinks they are. They're important to him, so important that he comes looking for them. Now, part of the reason that they are out scattered around is because there was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. Zechariah prophesied that God would strike the shepherd and the sheep would be scattered. That happened on the night when Jesus was arrested. All of his disciples scattered. These two disciples are scattering even more. They've left the larger group. They're out off on their own, walking to another village. And here comes the good shepherd looking for them. To do what? To reveal himself to them. They don't recognize him, verse 16, even though he's standing right in front of them. 
There's some kind of spiritual blindness keeping them from seeing who he really is. It's the same kind that you'll hear about later that night with the rest of the disciples that keeps them from understanding the scriptures. Jesus has to open their mind so that they can understand the scripture. You need to make sure you get that distinction. The disciples know the scriptures, probably have known them all their lives, but they don't understand them. They don't understand the main point of what the scripture is about until what? Until Jesus opens their minds to understand the scripture. See, it's not enough to read the Bible. You have to have Jesus open your mind so that you understand what it is that you're reading. Larger groups of disciples need to have Jesus open their minds, and so also does Cleopas and his companion. Now listen, this is, this is amazing. Jesus asks Cleopas and his friend, what's been going on lately? And they tell him all the facts about the, his death and resurrection. They tell him, verse 20, that Jesus was delivered up to the chief priests and rulers that he was condemned to death and crucified, that three days later no one could find his body and that he was declared to be alive again. They know all the facts of the gospel. And it's not enough. They're still sad. There's no joy there. They know the facts, but the facts have not come alive for them yet. The facts don't have anything to do with them yet. The facts are there. They know the facts, but the facts on their own have not changed how these two are living. These two disciples are not connected to the facts that they know. For that to happen, in order to believe the facts, you have to have an experience. You have to have an experience of Jesus coming to look for you, of opening your mind and opening your eyes so that the facts move from external things that are true to things that are true for you, to things that involve you, and for that to happen, you have to have an experience of this risen Christ. Now, a lot of people have religious experiences. They get a sense of infinity as they stand and look out the ocean, or they, or they get a sense of beauty when they climb up on a high mountain, or, or they have a sense of shared solidarity with humanity as they're in the middle of a crowd. Those are all valid experiences, but this passage is talking about a very different kind of experience. And it's, it's an experience that takes away spiritual blindness that lets you see Jesus for who he is, that lets you hear what God has to say about him. When Jesus opens the disciples' minds, verse 45, he does it, verse 44, so that they can understand the scripture. That's what that phrase, the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms meant. That was a way of talking about all of the Hebrew scriptures, all of what we have in our Old Testament. And so what Jesus opens their mind to is that everything in the scripture is about him in some way. That's the same thing that he teaches Cleopas and his friend on the road as they're walking with Jesus. And they also have that mind-opening experience. They talk about it a little differently. They say that their hearts were burning within them as Jesus unpacked how everything in the scripture pointed to himself. Have you had that kind of experience? One that says, this is more now than just words on a page. Something else is happening here. Something in my heart, something in my mind. That's the experience you have to have. Doesn't matter whether it's an earth-shaking experience. For some people it is. Other people it's very quiet. They hardly even notice it. But you have to have the experience of the good shepherd looking for you, opening your mind so that somewhere deep inside of you, there's now a voice that says, 
oh my goodness, <laughs> this is real. The scriptures are true. This is God speaking. This is what he thinks. This is how he feels. These are the kinds of things that he's doing. I, I'm starting to understand what God himself is saying. And he's speaking to me. This is about my place in his world. This is about him connecting with me. When you have that, when the scriptures come alive for you, that's how you know that you've had the experience of Jesus coming to you. If you've had that experience, your understanding of him, your love of hearing what he says, it keeps growing. If you haven't had that experience, ask him for it. Ask him to come find you. Ask him to open your mind to what he's done. To help you see that what he did is for you personally. You have to have that personal encounter if you want joy. And listen, if he goes out looking for Cleopas and someone else who we don't even know what their name is, he'll come looking for you too. Ask him for that. So first, if you're going to have joy, you need to see that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Second, you need to encounter him personally. And then third, you need to embrace his agenda. A key part of why the two disciples are sad is that they still have their own idea of what Jesus was going to do. They have their own agenda of, that they try to fit Jesus into. I talked about this at the Good Friday service, so I'll do it really quickly here. Part of their problem, verse 21, is that they had hoped Jesus was the one who would redeem Israel. They had a certain kind of redemption in their mind. It was a very narrow national political deliverance. But it was the kind of deliverance in which there was no place for Jesus to die. So when he did die, they were sad, sad because it was their hopes, their dreams that were not going to come true. They saw his death as a cause for sadness. But notice then, at the end of the chapter, their hopes and their dreams for Israel still have not come true. And yet, the disciples walk away with great joy. Now, why is that? It's because now they see that his death has to be understood in a different way. It has to be interpreted in a different way. It has to be seen through a different filter. One from the scripture that says, verse 44, that this had to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and die and then rise three days later in order to accomplish his purposes, not theirs. Why were they sad earlier? They had a different idea of what Jesus came to do. But their emotional response changes when they see what God is doing and when they get on board with what God's doing. When they realize that Jesus did not come to redeem national Israel from national enemies, but that he came to die and to rise again for a purpose. The purpose, verse 47, so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He had to do that because he believed, one, that there is such a thing as sin. That real evil lodges inside of every human being. And that, two, the root of all of our problems has something to do with this sin that we cannot deal with on our own. That this sin is responsible for us rejecting God and for hurting other people. And third, Jesus believed that the most transformative thing that can happen to someone is the forgiveness of sins linked to his name. That something in his suffering, his dying, and his rising from the dead now makes forgiveness possible.
That's why Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead. And once the disciples get hold of that, once they get hold of God's agenda, then Jesus' death is no longer a cause for sadness. Now it's a cause for great joy. Now I'm afraid that some of you may be tempted to think, oh, that's just the gospel. I already know that. That's how we get right with God. That's how we get to heaven. Which is true, but the gospel is a whole lot more than that. Almost sounds funny to say it. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel is what the entire Old Testament is about. That's why Jesus opened their minds to understand it all had something to do with this gospel. The New Testament looks back and declares this is what Jesus really did. He fulfilled everything the Old Testament said he would do. But then it doesn't stop there. It goes on and it starts teasing out the implications of the gospel. And starts to show how every moment of every day is lived out of the gospel. That it's not simply how you enter into a life with God. It's how you now live every moment of that new life that you have with Christ. The gospel is the controlling paradigm for how you see all of life. It's the guy that tells you how you should respond to life. It's the power to actually do that living. In other words, it's not simply how you get to God. It's now how you live, having come to God. It impacts everything you do, every area of your life, with every person in your world. Let's think about it this way. Try holding together the two things that Jesus says are at the heart of the gospel. Try holding together sin and forgiveness. Try holding them together, giving them equal weight without what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. Try holding them together and you'll discover you can't. You'll discover that you have to emphasize one or the other. You have to emphasize one, you have to downplay the other. And by doing that, you end up creating broken relationships with everyone around you. Let me give you an illustration. In 1850, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote The Scarlet Letter. It's a fictional story. He said it in the mid-1600s in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in Puritan, New England. It's about a young woman who committed adultery and got caught. And that was such a heinous act in the eyes of her society that she is publicly humiliated, required to wear a scarlet A on her dress for the rest of her life, and shunned by the rest of her community. Now Hawthorne is weaving together lots of different themes in his book, but notice what the setting of his story tells you. It tells you that at one time in the U.S., it was possible for part of our society to value sexual faithfulness so highly that it saw any breaking of that faithfulness as vile. So vile that it would brand you for life. That if you sinned in this way, that sin would be forever attached to you, that it would define you, that it would be a permanent part of your identity. They saw the evil of sexual impurity. They saw the sin. But they saw it in such a way that eliminated true forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that makes restoration possible. Restoration of you as an individual, restoration of you to the larger community. Hawthorne's community could not give equal weight to both sin and forgiveness. They had to value one over the other, which meant that they could not create a healthy community. But let's not leave the example in a work of historical fiction. Fast forward to today. Our world does not see sexual sin as that big a deal, and so it will not brand you in the same way if you commit sexual sin like it once did. 
But there are things that you can do that will brand you. And I would argue brand you for life. Isn't that the case with racism? Now please hear me, I am not about to justify anything to do with racism. What I am going to say is that if you do not approach racism through the gospel, you're going to end up going down one of two very different yet equally destructive paths. And they will be destructive paths for everyone involved. The first path is to declare racism as the new scarlet letter. That's what societies do when they don't have an absolute standard of right and wrong. They trade letters over time such that what used to be seen as evil no longer is, while things that used to be okay no longer are. And so we no longer have scarlet A's, we now have scarlet R's. What stays the same in both societies, both cultures, however, is that this letter, whatever the letter is, this thing that if you've engaged in it, now brands you. It now defines you. It sticks with you so that even one transgression is enough to make you damaged goods in the eyes of your society. Now, what is that? That's secular legalism. Secular puritanism. Secular works righteousness that says to be considered a decent person, you must never ever do this thing. Again, whatever the thing is. And you must never ever have done this thing. Because if you do or have, then you are in a different class from all the rest of us. Different class from the good people who did not do what you have done. And we will only accept you if you work for your forgiveness. If you do penance if you make up for what you have done and prove that you are now a good person like us, you're going to have to work your way back into our good graces. But even then, we probably will not forget what you have done. Now notice, if you go down this path, that it's going to damage everyone involved. It's going to leave one group feeling smug about themselves, self-righteous, because we would never do anything like that. And it leaves the other group in despair. Because how long do you have to work to prove that you are no longer defined by that letter, whatever the letter now is? Is six months long enough? One year? Two years? I don't know if you've been following what has been taking place with the magazine Teen Vogue in the past month, but they uh, had decided to hire a new editor-in-chief last month. And they weren't able to hire the person that they planned to. And you realize the reason was because of some tweets that the person had put out. And you realize, no, two years is not enough. In her case, 10 years hasn't been enough. How long is enough? Go down that path far enough, and it's going to lead you to a very, the very destructive other path. And that is the path that minimizes sin that makes excuses for it, as some people have tried to do with the editor-in-chief. The path that says, oh, what you did in your teen years, well, you know, that, that's just teenage foolishness. It was 10 years ago. Isn't 10 years long enough to have gotten that out of your system? But is it? If that thing came out of you, then what? Then it really was in you in the first place, wasn't it? And if it came out of you and impacted other people, how can anyone excuse the impact that it had? Isn't this now an issue of justice? of someone who hurt other people by what they said and did? 
You realize, of course it is. That's why time and extenuating circumstances can't make it go away. By the way, you realize there's a certain level of arrogance for someone who says, well, you know, two years is enough, 10 years is enough. How can they say that? That's, how can they say that that's enough to make up for how someone else was hurt? But here again, let's take the log out of our own eye first. Because haven't we all sinned against other people? Isn't this true of us? I know it's true of me. Maybe not, maybe we haven't done the current scarlet wrong, but haven't we all done things wrong whether we knew in the moment that they were or not? Things that were wrong whether our society recognized them or not. Things that hurt other people. Things that we cannot take back, things that should not be excused or minimized. Do you see how both paths either valuing sin over forgiveness or valuing forgiveness over sin, making someone earn their forgiveness or excusing their sin. Do you see how both paths rip apart relationships? How they make relationship impossible. You have to call out sin for what it is. Otherwise, you're unjust. But once you've done that, you have to have a way to restore the one who has sinned back to themselves, back to community. You have to have the desire to want to restore them. You have to have a way to deal with the hurt and damage that their sin caused. And if the person doing the sinning is unable to undo that damage, what can help? If you keep this strictly on the human-to-human -human level, nothing can. You cannot create a healthy society. You cannot take sin and forgiveness with equal seriousness. And that's why we need someone from outside who can. Someone who can absorb the sin from us so that we're not burdened by it who can absorb it from each of us, regardless of what it is that we've done, who can absorb it so completely that we are set free inside, so that we are changed in the process, so that we are now people who gladly want to extend that same kind of forgiveness to other people, extend that same kind of freedom to other people. God's solution, the gospel, is that Jesus is willing to take your scarlet letter from you, He's willing to take your entire scarlet alphabet from you. He's willing to wear that in your place. That's what he was doing on the cross. He's wearing the letters of his people. He's covered with those letters. He's dying under the weight of their shame before God. But then when he rises from the dead, he doesn't have a single one of them with him. He's not marked by them, not marked by their shame. He does not sit in heaven right now with a trace of, of the shame of his people's sins attached to him. And if he took your letter, then you don't sit there right now with a trace of shame attached to you. That's the hope that Jesus offers you. Hope that says what you have done does not define you regardless of what anyone else says about you. Hope that is for you as an individual. Hope then that is relational. Because if there's hope for you, there's hope for anyone. And that hope then will move you out to enter into this world so that you call out sin for what it is. And not just the current popular sins, but all of the ones that offend God, even if they don't offend our society. But you call them out with humility. Because you know how hard won your own forgiveness is. That's the kind of humility that moves you toward people, not away. Humility that builds relationships rather than destroying them.
Without this way of dealing with sin, what will you do? You'll end up driving people to be self-righteous about their own goodness or hide and minimize what they've said and done. You'll create a community that group thinks, that echoes what everyone else around them is saying and shouting. There will be no honest discussions over race, no discussions over poverty, no discussions over injustice. Instead, what? There will be fear. People will hold back what they think because they're going to be afraid to make a mistake now that will earn them a different letter 10 years from now when society shifts again. Without the gospel, you won't end up with joy and you won't end up with a joyful community. But if you see that God's forgiveness of sin means that you can now live today without guilt and without shame, you'll invite others to experience the same thing for themselves. And then you will enter into an imperfect, stumbling community with them. It's called the church. It's the community of former letter wearers. It's a community that doesn't always get it right. We often get it wrong. But it's a community that is now free to learn how to love one another better. And we love each other as we all move toward this God who gladly took our letters from us, wore them himself, and then made them disappear. Embrace him, embrace his agenda, and you won't be able to help living with joy. Lord Jesus, you have won for us such a great salvation. Lord, forgive us for making it so small, for thinking that it hardly touches anything in life, but that it just sort of does something for us at the end of life. Forgive us, Lord, for not seeing the power of your resurrection, for not tapping into that every moment of our days. And Lord, thank you that even that letter does not stick to us. Thank you that you've rescued us even from ourselves in our relationship with you. Lord God, set us free now to live the rest of today joyfully. In Jesus' name, amen.